Welcome to the third wave of quarantine evidence-based radio. I've decided to start calling it the third wave because obviously COVID is back on the rise as winter sets in and there's also a variety of other things that are going around and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So let's start tonight with some good news, some actual just good news. Wisdom, the world's oldest known wild bird, has returned to Midway Atoll. And so she was first spotted on the island on Thanksgiving. Now, I've talked about Wisdom and her fellow Laysan albatrosses. I think earlier this year, might have been last year, um, but Wisdom is pretty amazing. She is at least 71 years old and she has um, had at least, I think at least 30 chicks fledge. So she's done a lot of good work over the years to help these beautiful, amazing, and very big birds uh, continue to try and hold on as much as they can. Um, you know, there's obviously issues on the island with, um, there's a lot of issues with trash and rats and things like that, that, you know, humans have caused. Unfortunately, there is a slight downside, which is that her long-term mate has not returned for the last two years, but hopefully wisdom is still having a good time, still hanging on and hopefully will return to Midway Atoll next year as well. Okay, let's move on to some less good news, but there's still a little bit of uh, hope in it. So first off, the good stuff. Health officials are reporting that this year's flu shot appears to be a quote-unquote very good match to the strain that to the strains that are most prevalent this year. Now, of course, there is a caveat, which is that vaccination rates are down from this time last year. I can tell you firsthand, this flu season is off to a rough start, Dr. Sandra Fryhofer, the board chair of the American Medical Association and an internist, told reporters during a news conference on Monday, that would be December 5th, we've forgotten how bad the flu can be. But this year's season is a shout out that it can be really bad and it's here. So people need to get vaccinated. Between November 20th and November 26th, more than 19,500 people were admitted to hospital with the flu, according to the CDC's surveillance reporting. That's 8,300 more people than the previous week. Already, 14 children have died due to the flu. Um, That's a really important thing that I think a lot of people forget about is that, yes, you and I getting the flu, you might feel bad for a while. You might uh, have to call in sick a couple of days. You should definitely call in sick a couple of days if you can at any in any way, shape or form if you are sick. Um, But children can 
actually die from this and the elderly can also die. And so even if you think, oh, you know, I only hang out with people who are, you know, young and healthy, one of those people might be in contact with a young child or someone who's elderly. And so it is really important to get vaccinated. Now, there hasn't been a huge drop in most populations, but it's still an overall drop, with 51.7 million doses having been administered to adults as of mid-November, compared to 54.1 million last year. Now, around 40% of children between 6 months and 17 years have been inoculated, uh, but this rather dismal number is actually similar to last year. Uh, and so, yeah, definitely get it if you have not yet. This year's shot protects against four strains, two influenza A and two influenza B viruses. Surveillance testing shows that more than 99% of circulating viruses are influenza A, with the vast majority being AH3N2 and with a minority being AH1N1. And so these are similar, again, to strains included in the vaccine. So the vaccine should be able to create effective immune responses in the body. Now, we can't say for certain yet that our luck will hold out. Other strains may pop up later in the season that are not related to the, pre the current vaccine strains, but time will tell. Generally, flu shots are 40 to around 60% effective when they're well-matched with circulating strains. This means that vaccinated individuals are 40 to 60% less likely to have to visit a doctor than those who aren't vaccinated. Flu shots cannot protect you 100% from coming down with the flu. And that's actually not what they're designed to do. We know that people are still potentially going to get the flu. This is much like the COVID shot where you want to try and prevent it, but if you do still get infected, having that vaccine on board helps reduce hospitalization and death. And so they definitely uh, reduce your chances versus people who have not been vaccinated. And even if you've already had the flu, you should still get the shot if you haven't because other strains could pop up later in the season. The only thing worse than getting the flu once in a season is getting it again after being exposed to a different strain, Fryhofer said. So yeah, uh, flu is bad this year. Get a vaccine. It's free. You can get it anywhere. Um, it's safe and effective. It's been in use for years and years. And there's no reason not to, even if you think that you're completely able-bodied and healthy you should still do it. Okay, so we are going to uh, stick with infectious diseases uh, because we all know how much I enjoy infectious diseases. <sighs> um, yeah, the last couple of years have been uh, personally very, very trying for me uh, in the sense of my mental health because infectious diseases are one of my like absolute uh, horrors. And I definitely feel like, um, it's, it's been really tough to continue to not feel like everything is the zombie apocalypse upon us. <laughs> 
Okay. So a quick update on the measles outbreak in Ohio. Now, unfortunately, I don't have good news on this front. It seems that the outbreak has tripled in recent weeks, and experts expect that it will continue for months. As of Friday the 2nd, the confirmed case count rose to 50 from just 18 in mid-November. All of the infected children have been completely unvaccinated. Nine were are babies too young to have been given the first dose. 26 are infants who are eligible for the first dose. 10 are toddlers aged three to five, some of whom should have already been eligible for the second dose. And five are children between six and 17 who should have already received both doses of the safe and effective and very well-tested MMR vaccine that protects against measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, and as someone said recently about this, you know, think about the fact that it protects against rubella. Rubella is a, you know, a Victorian disease that nobody, you know, you've never heard of anybody getting rubella. And that's because of safe and effective vaccination. So that's what we are trying to do with all of this is to leave these kinds of Victorian diseases in the past and not let them regain a foothold in our society. And so health officials disclosed in a recent press conference that at least 25% of the region's two-year-olds have not been vaccinated. Looking at county-level census data, this suggests that tens of thousands of children might become infected by this highly contagious disease. And I mean seriously contagious. It can be spread by coughing, talking, just being near an infected person, or literally even being in a room where an infected person has recently been because the virus can persist in the air for up to two hours after the infected person has left. So you could think that you're being responsible and not uh, interacting with people. And, you know, that person might have been in the room before you. And you might think, oh, I'm alone in a room. I can, for instance, take my mask off and... Uh, which you are hopefully wearing. You should be wearing your masks. Um, if you stopped, you should start again. Um, and you could still become infected. So the CDC actually estimates that up to 90% of those who are unvaccinated and exposed will become infected. So it's a big deal. I do expect our numbers to continue growing, to grow. Uh, Maishika Roberts, public health commissioner for Columbus, said in a press conference this week, in talking to the CDC and our colleagues across the country who've experienced measles outbreaks, this can last several months. Now, one of the problems is kind of unique for this situation. Officials have not yet pinpointed the communities specifically at risk. If they're able to find those populations, they could then administer preemptive vaccination to babies aged 6 to 11 months. Usually the first dose is given at 12 months or slightly after. The second dose is usually administered between the ages of 4 and 6. 
We have been in discussion with the CDC about that, Robert said. Communities that have done that in the past have been able to really define the geographic location of where the cases are. We are not certain that we can really restrict the geographic area. So we're looking into that closely. We're working with our colleagues at CDC, really trying to map out where these cases are to see if there is a segment of our community that we could offer that as an option to parents. And so part of the problem is there are currently three public health jurisdictions involved, Columbus Public Health, Franklin County Public Health, and Ross County Health District. Ross County is around 47 miles south of Franklin with another country, another county, (laughs) Pickaway in between, showing that the disease is not spreading uniformly. Three specific locations were also mentioned, a grocery store, a church, and a mall to give the public a heads up. We have no way of informing individuals in those areas without going to the media, Robert said. And so the 50 cases that have been reported so far are all from local infection, local spread. There were four other um, cases. These were travel-related cases in the area between June and October. And so officials believe that the current outbreak is most likely tied to one of those travel-related cases um, because there are still places in the world where measles is actively spreading. And again, this is another thing that we should be working on. We should be working on spreading the vaccine to as many people as possible in other countries as well. And I know there must be programs for that. Um, but this is another one where like, much like smallpox, we could eradicate this disease, but we just haven't yet had the ability to do it for reasons that are not technological, are not scientific, they're political and uh, people-driven, and it's very frustrating. It's like how we've almost conquered polio, but the last places where it's a holdout are places where people are deeply distrustful of Western medicine and of influence by Western people. Now, some of that is for very good reason, uh, but some of it is simply out of spite for anything Western. And it's very frustrating because if we could get people in those areas to take the polio vaccine, we could literally eradicate it the way that we did smallpox. the outbreak in Ohio is currently, this is one of the few good things, the only major outbreak in the country. And so hopefully it will remain that way. But of course, between the rising anti-vaccine movement and delayed or missed vaccinations due to the pandemic, cases in Ohio are expected to continue to spread. And this is why it can take hold and spread in other regions as well without vigilance. Now, sadly, despite a few weeks of media attention, there has not yet been any kind of uptick in children being vaccinated, according to local health officials. And so, um, yeah, I, that is the most frustrating thing for me is that people see this and they don't immediately think, oh man, I don't want my child to get sick. I should give them a safe 
an effective vaccine. The anti-vaccine movement has been able to brainwash people so thoroughly that they don't understand that this is a safe and effective measure for helping their children to avoid a really nasty childhood disease. All right, let's let's leave infectious disease and move on to return once again to Mars. It is very cool how much we're learning about Mars, and I hope that you're enjoying me sharing this information with you because it seems like every other week I'm returning to Mars. So, the Mars InSight lander might have ended its mission due to dust buildup on its solar panels, but the data it gathered is still going to be studied for years to come. Already, we know that the data suggests that almost all of Mars's seismic activity appears to be centered on a site called the Elysium Planitia. We also know that this is the site of the most recent volcanic activity on the Red Planet, recent being relative. <laughs> a recent paper argues that both the quakes and the volcanic activity originate from a plume of hot magma rising through the mantle. Now you find this in places like Yellowstone. People are always talking about the plume under Yellowstone, but also in places like Iceland. Um, magma plumes are also responsible for uh, the creation of the Hawaiian Islands, actually, um, which I think is really interesting. And so... All of those are relatively straightforward because on Earth, we still have a lot of, uh, we still have a core that is highly molten, um, molten, there's no T in that. <laughs> uh, and so on Mars, though, it's, it's rather odd uh, because we basically thought that the planet had cooled to the point where there were no longer liquid materials doing this sort of thing in the planet's interior. Now, Elysium Planitia is a fairly flat region of the planet covering nearly a million square kilometers or over 600,000 square miles and sits on the edge of Mars's northern lowlands, but over a half mile above them. While there are older formations, such as a series of ridges thought to have been caused by the compression of Mars's interior during the cooling phase, it also has signs of recent activity. The region features signs of a large flood of volcanic material released from large fissures in the area and also signs of pyroclastic flows that seem to be from less than 200,000 years ago. Again, like I said, recent is a little bit relative here. Making them the latest sign of volcanic activity thus far found on the planet. Now, these re features were one of the reasons NASA decided to position the InSight lander at Elysium Planitia. So, um, yeah, the part of the point was to see what was going on here. And while there are various reasons for why the volcanic activity and Mars quakes could be there, only one hypothesis fits all of the facts. While alternative explanations may exist for some of these observations, the authors write, only an active mantle plume can account for all of them. 
Now, the area of compression fractures are thought to be from old terrain that's subsiding as the interior of Mars cools. So basically, you have this crust of a planet and, you know, as it slowly cools, it contracts. Um, and so as it contracts, you get this subsiding. So it basically bits kind of cave in because the rock is solidifying and um, shrinking a little bit. And again, uh, we, we know that unlike those areas of subsistence, this area is raised by over half over a mile and a half from the surrounding lowlands, which suggests possible tectonic uplift. Now, there is also the area called Cerebus Fossae, which is a series of probable volcanic vents and the deposits that they produced. These deposits are quite extensive, suggesting a large amount of magma was released in the region, ruling out some potential sources for the rock. These deposits, however, aren't thicker than a bit over 300 feet, and so they definitely can't account for the large amount of uplift. Measures of the local variations in gravity, in gravitational pull, suggest the elevation is supported from deep within the crust. And so, finally, the volcanic material has much higher levels of iron than other volcanic deposits on the planet. And so this is a feature shared by volcanism caused by mantle plumes on Earth. So in those same places like Yellowstone and uh, Iceland. So all of this suggests that while the region has been undergoing the normal contraction faulting common across the planet, it also shows a more recent encounter with a mantle plume that has reached the crust below it, elevating the region and creating the faults associated with Cerebus Fossae. The researchers then created a computer model of a mantle plume and adjusted it to fit the data from InSight. When they did this, they found a plume just under 2,500 miles in diameter and about 124 to 310 miles thick. You get these sort of odd numbers because like most of the world, all of this stuff is done in uh, metric and I have to convert it back to imperial. So I think I might have messed up on high, how high the elevation was. I think in one point I said it was a half a mile and in another point I said it was one and a half miles. I think it's a half mile. Um, so I apologize for that, uh, <laughs> that confusion. If only we would just switch to the metrics system like everyone else does, but alas, apparently that's uh, some sort of uh, conspiracy theory that we should switch to the metric system because apparently staying with the system that no one really uses anymore is patriotic or some sort of ridiculousness like that. Anyway... <laughs> They also estimated that the temperature of the plume would be 100 to 300 kelvins, just kelvin, it's not 
there's no S there, hotter than the surrounding area. Interestingly, the site is much lower than hotspots driven hotspot-driven sites elsewhere on Mars and at the low end of what you'd find on Earth. But the fact that it's happening at all is kind of a big deal. Earlier mantle plumes should have dried out the interior of the planet, making it harder for rocks to melt. And the compression of the area should also have made it harder for molten rock to be extruded onto the surface. And even more crucially, Mars's interior as I noted, should have cooled significantly after the period when it built the massive volcanoes of the Tharsis Plateau. So think of Olympus Mons. Some models even suggest the interior should be too cold for any kind of plumes at this point. So it's an important area to study so that we can learn more about Mars. Unfortunately, we can't answer everything at this point because of the unfortunate failure of the mole. Now, you probably remember that InSight had a third instrument that uh, was supposed to dig into the interior of the crust and take temperature readings. And unfortunately, it just never quite managed to work. Hopefully in future, NASA can send another craft with an improved digging device that can actually complete the work of measuring the heat flow in the area. So yeah, that is very interesting. And one of the reasons that we want to learn more about this is that if we want to do more things on Mars, we need to kind of understand how it is working and how it's developed and knowing more about how Mars evolved can tell us more about how the Earth evolved. So we can sort of compare and contrast the two as they did here with the iron levels in the lava um, or in the uh, rock and in um, other respects having to do with these mantle plumes. And just as we're talking about mantle plumes, I do want to uh, make the obvious statement that uh, Yellowstone, uh, people are always worried about Yellowstone. Uh, every time there's a uh, quake swarm there or a little bit of uplift, people get really worried. But um, again, I don't think we are currently on track to have a major eruption at Yellowstone anytime soon. Uh, so that is definitely something you don't have to worry about at this moment. Of course, uh, one of the big things is the possibility of traveling to and staying on Mars. And um, as I was looking through a bunch of things uh, this week, I actually haven't managed to read yet, and maybe we'll talk about it next week, a story that researchers are actually getting pretty close, apparently, according to the headline at least, uh, of being able to have humans hibernate. So that's a thing. That's a thing that might be able to be done. And if so, that would make uh, space travel a little easier for humans. Uh, there's still the issues of radiation shielding and all sorts of other fun stuff. But um, yeah, so 
if it's interesting, if it's actually something that looks promising, uh, I'll try and remember to talk about it next week. But if you wanted to look at it up in the meantime, uh, I think it was in nature. Okay. Uh, this is the time where we take a short break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And then when we come back, we are going to talk about the uh, recent uh, kerfuffle over the supposed wormhole that was created. And uh, we're going to talk about physics in the second half. I hope that uh, you're prepared for that. This is actually one of the sort of easier things in physics, I think, to understand. So hopefully you'll stick with me. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, 
it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to talk about wormholes. Now, wormholes are currently the sole purview of science fiction. Now, there are theoretical underpinnings for some of the proposed features of a wormhole, but nothing exists as far as we know in nature. And so any headline that purports that this is going to be the next thing in uh, wormholes or in uh, like space travel or whatever is ridiculous. Uh, So again, the idea that one has been created by a quantum computer is an exaggeration or a complete misunderstanding of what the paper published in Nature actually details. But it's still really interesting to talk about nonetheless. So let's do it. There's a difference between something being possible in principle and possible in reality, co-author Joseph Lichen of Fermilab said during a media briefing this week. So don't hold your breath about sending your dog through a wormhole. I like that one. <laughs> now, a true wormhole would be a bridge between two points in space-time, which connect the mouths of two black holes and through which physical objects can pass and emerge on one end or the other. So, for instance, if you've seen uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, you'll have a pretty good idea of the fictional version of this idea. The wormhole opens up, the ship or whatever goes through, and then in another far-off place in the universe, another uh, hole opens up and the ship comes out and it's traversed a huge amount of space in a very small amount of time. The latest research is built off work by lots of people, honestly. Um, But when you get down to kind of the uh, end, it's work by Leonard Susskind, a quantum gravity theorist at Stanford University, and Juan Maldacena, a quantum gravity theorist now at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Uh, And that's in New Jersey, obviously. But it starts by building off the work of Albert Einstein and Nathan Rosen, and then Einstein, Rosen, and Boris Podolsky. Podolsky. Uh, And so the first paper established the idea of the traditional wormhole, also known as an Einstein-Rosen bridge. And if you are a... uh, Marvel movie nerd, you might know that that is the explanation for the Bifrost in um, the Thor movies is that it is an Einstein-Rosen bridge. Anyways, the second paper added Podolsky and described quantum entanglement using math from German physicist soldier Karl Schwarzschild. 
This work, in turn, was built off of by black hole theorist John Wheeler and other researchers, including the Dutch physicist Gerard Tehuft, that first described the idea that space-time springs from information, and then some of this emergence might have to do with the projection of a hologram. And so this is where Susskind and Maldacena came in. They devised an idea that wormhole physics and quantum entanglement might be one in the same. That sentence might not seem like much, but it's a pretty big idea that might lead to a theory of quantum gravity, which finally connects general relativity with quantum physics. Now, um, just before we go on, I want to backtrack a little bit to Einstein. So this second paper... Uh, on quantum entanglement is the one uh, that brought Einstein to uh, turn the phrase spooky action at a distance. And he didn't like it. He was very grumpy about (laughs) the theory. Uh, Despite the fact that the math made sense, it really irked Einstein. And he basically never really liked quantum uh, physics because it just, it, it was too weird and uncomfortable and we didn't yet have good explanations for how things could work. Um, as far as he was concerned, quantum entanglement broke causality because there was no way for the information to travel uh, at light speed or less that it would have to have traveled at more than light speed. And as far as his equations suggested, you can't go faster than light speed. So that particular paper was one of those ones where he was kind of like, oh, the math works, but I still don't like it, which I think is uh, very fun. Um, Einstein was actually a really interesting and like multifaceted guy. Um, I know we always talk about Einstein, but um, even I haven't read enough about his other things. Um, pursuits besides physics. He did a whole bunch of stuff. And so if you're looking for something over the holidays, you might want to grab a biography of Einstein. Anyways, <laughs> so Susskind and uh, Maldacena came in and they devised an idea that wormhole physics and quantum entangle might be one and the same. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Susskind found that you could connect the macro and quantum scales Then, Maldacena discovered a kind of space called anti-decitter space, or ADS. And so, that is a hologram. So, in physics, the basic idea is that you can use the idea of a hologram, a 3D space without gravity, as a simplified equivalent of the actual thing. And so basically you can do a bunch of equations in this hologram space and then you can do some um, reconnecting to the uh, four-dimensional space of um, the actual universe and then you can sort of get information without having to um, have done all of the detailed work that would require having this four-dimensional space with gravity. And so that's what they mean by holograms. It's it's more about 
the math than about, you know, the kind of hologram that you buy as a, you know, on like a fancy trading card or something like that. And so the physical universe is de-sitter space, an ever-growing sphere driven outward by its own energy. In contrast, ADS is infused with negative energy, resulting from a difference in a sign in the sign of one constant in the equations of general relativity. And so this gives the space a hyperbolic geometry, wherein objects shrink as they move outward from the center of space, becoming infinitesimal at an outer boundary. And so Maldacena showed that space-time and gravity inside an ADS universe corresponds to properties of a quantum system on the boundary. This was a huge breakthrough that has led to 22,000 or more citations in subsequent studies. Trying to exploit ideas based on ADS slash CFT has been the main goal of thousands of the best theorists for decades, Peter White, a mathematical physicist at Columbia University, told Quanta Magazine. CFT refers to conformal field theory, and that is a quantum system that lacks gravity but features quantum entanglement. So this is another kind of uh, mathematical construct um, that people use in order to study the theoretical uh, exploits of the universe. And so kind of talk about a lot of these things. When we talk about a lot of these things, you probably want to think of them more as math equations rather than as actual kind of models, like a solar system model or something like that. Uh, they're really about sets of mathematical equations. And so it was a decade before um, Maldacino reached the epiphany and wrote to Susskind that, quote, ER equals EPR. And uh, Susskind immediately was like, oh, that makes total sense because physicists. <laughs> and so they quickly wrote up the conjecture. We argue that the Einstein-Rosen bridge between two black holes is created by EPR-like correlations between the microstates of the two black holes, and that the duality might be more general than that. It is very tempting to think that any EPR-correlated system is connected by some sort of ER bridge. Now, when physicists talk about duality, it's about, um, again, simplifying systems in mathematics. So if you looked at the mathematics of an Einstein-Rosen bridge, you could compare that um, in a mathematical way to the mathematics for quantum entanglement is what they're saying. Daniel Jafferis of Harvard University heard Maldacena talk about this duality in 2013 and began to theorize that you could design a wormhole 
by tailoring the entanglement pattern. He began working on the project with Ping Gao, his graduate student at the time, and Aaron Wall, then a visiting researcher. They imagined a wire or some other physical connection between two particles that would create an entanglement that might stabilize an Einstein-Rosen bridge in order to make a true wormhole. The fact that if you do the right things from the outside, you can end up getting through, it also means you can see inside the wormhole, Jafferis said. It means that it's possible to probe this fact that two entangled systems get described by some connected geometry. Maldicino, Maldicina and two colleagues then built on this scheme and described a quantum system that's simple enough that we can imagine making it, Jeffrey said. So, then we come to the SYK model. This is a system of matter particles that interact in groups rather than in single pairs. This element was first described by Subir Sachdev and Jin Wu Yi in 1993 and became more important once theoretical physicist Alexei Kiriev discovered that once again, it was holographic. And that's where you get SYK, Sachdev, Yi, and Kiriev. In 2015, Kiriev gave a lecture where he filled several chalkboards with evidence that a version of the model using matter particles that interact in groups of four was mathematically mappable to a one-dimensional black hole in ADS space. Some answers are the same in two cases, he told the audience, which featured Maldicina sitting in the front row. Maldicina and his co-authors proposed that two SYK models linked together could encode the two mouths of Jaffris, Gao, and Wall's transversible wormhole. By 2019, Jefferis and Gao had found a way to teleport a qubit of information from one system of four-way interacting particles to another. By rotating all the particles' spin direction, they caused, in the dual space-time picture, a negative energy shock, energy shock wave, that sweeps through the wormhole and allows a qubit to transverse through and emerge at a predictable time out of the mouth. Jefferson's wormhole is the first concrete realization of ER equals EPR, where he shows the relation holds exactly for a particular system, said Alex Slacopa, a graduate student at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a co-author on the new experiment. So let's talk about that experiment. While this is going on, Maria Spiripulo of the California Institute of Technology, an experimental particle physicist who was part of the team that discovered the Higgs boson in 2012, was working on using the Sycamore device, a quantum computer owned by Google, to do holographic quantum gravity experiments. In 2018, she persuaded Jefferis to join her team at Google Quantum AI. Now, while this computer is at the cutting edge, it is still small and error-prone. 
So Sparapulu's team had to greatly simplify the parameters of the test. A full SYK model consists of almost an infinity of particles coupled to one another with random strengths as four-way interactions occur throughout. This is way too complicated for the current computer to be able to handle. Even using all 50 or so available qubits would have required hundreds of thousands of operations to achieve a result. The researchers had to devise a way to run the experiment with just seven qubits. That took a couple of years to figure out a clever way to do it, Spiropulu said. That was when they were aided by Alex Slakopa. Slakopa actually joined the team as an undergrad and continued on as a graduate student. He mapped the particle reactions of the SYK model onto connections between neurons in a neural network, and then trained the system to delete as many network connections as possible while keeping the wormhole signal viable. This reduced the number of four-way interactions from hundreds down to just five. This allowed the team to commence preparations and programming Sycamore's qubits. Seven on each side encoded to 14 matter particles in the SYK system. Each particle on the left and right is entangled with their partner on the opposite side. At that point, an eighth qubit in some probabilistic combination of states between of, I should say, of zero and one is swapped with one of the particles from the left-hand side of the model. That qubit's probabilistic state is then tangled up with the states of the other particles on that side. This is holographically equivalent to the qubit entering the left-hand mouth of a one-dimensional wormhole in ADS space. Then there is a rotation of all the bits, which is equivalent to a pulse of negative energy flowing through the wormhole. This causes the qubit to transfer to the particles of the right-hand SYK model. This information unspreads back to a single qubit on the right, the entangled partner of the left-hand qubit that was swapped out. So basically, you can think of it as one qubit is, if you were thinking of them as people, one was handed a ball and the first one on the left-hand side then basically takes that, say it's a ball of putty, it takes that ball of putty and takes a piece off and gives it to everyone on the left side. And then what happens is that the ball is then able to transfer to the other side of the system and at that point, each person would get a piece of the ball. And as the system collapsed, they would gather all of the bits of the ball and give it back to the one person who was the partner of the original person on the left-hand side. I hope that made sense and didn't confuse you even more. <laughs> so once that's done, the qubit states are all measured. Running this scenario over and over and comparing the statistics to the prepared state of the injected 
qubits reveals whether or not they are actually teleporting through the wormhole. The researchers were looking for a peak in the data that represents a difference between two cases. If they saw a peak, it meant that the system was actually working. Slopaka was the first to see the peak two years after countless tweaks and noise reduction efforts. Actually, he did it remotely from his parents' house where he was visiting for the winter break. It kept getting sharper and sharper, he said. I was sending screenshots to the peak of the peak to Maria and getting very excited, writing, I think we see a wormhole now. The peak was the first sign that you can see that you could see gravity on a quantum computer. Now, not only did they get a characteristic peak, they got something unexpected. They were able to see the signature of side winding, the pattern caused by the way the information was spread and unspread among the qubits. So they could kind of see the pattern of that clay moving through the system and back again. Interestingly, they hadn't asked the neural network to preserve this signal in the initial programming. We didn't demand anything about this size binding property, but we found that it just popped out, Jaffra said. This confirmed the robustness of the holographic duality, he said. Make one property appear, then you get all the rest, which is a kind of evidence that this gravitational picture is the correct one. Now, Jafferis notes that this is a way to quantify quantum entanglement in a sort of tangible way. It suggests that the way particle A and B exchange information is via a kick of energy that moves at a calculable speed. There seems to be this nice story from the point of view of the qubits. It moves causally, said Jafferis. Maybe a quantum process like teleportation always feels gravitational to the qubit. If something like that could come out of this experiment and other related experiments, that will definitely tell us something deep about our universe. And the team thinks Einstein would be happy with this as it preserves causality because there is no faster than the speed of light information transfer. Instead, the information transfer is achieved through a wormhole shortcut. And so basically, you can have that kind of spooky action at a distance that isn't so spooky anymore because the distance is cut short by the wormhole. Now, of course, since all of this is theoretical physics, there are dissenters. Some physicists don't believe that experiments based on ADS-CFT correspond Correspondence is relevant because a similar holographic duality has not yet been found for de Sitter space. Some wonder if de Sitter space is holographic at all. Questions like, what about getting this to work in a more physical case of DS are not new but very old and have been the subject of tens of thousands of person years of unsuccessful effort, said White who is actually a critic of ADS-CFT research. What's needed are some quite different ideas. The main argument is that while ADS has an outer boundary, uh, DS space does not. So there is no smooth mathematical transition that can transform one into the other. 
that edge in ADS space is exactly what makes this sort of theory and research possible. In addition, Renate Lowell, a noted quantum gravity theorist at Radboud University in the Netherlands, points out the simplified nature of the experiment, which is only two-dimensional rather than the four dimensions of gravity. It is rather tempting to get entangled in the intricacies of the 2D toy models, she said by email to um, the Quantum Journal, while losing sight of the different and bigger challenges that await us in 4D gravity. 4D quantum gravity. For that theory, I cannot see how quantum computers with their current capabilities can be of much help, but I will be, ha- I will happily stand corrected. Now, my personal favorite is, uh, comes from Scott Aronson at the University of Texas in Austin, who told the New York Times, if this experiment has brought a wormhole into actual physical existence, then a strong case could be made that you too bring a wormhole into actual physical existence every time you sketch one with pen and paper. Now, most researchers, however, believe that there is room for exploring ADS in order to garner general lessons in the simpler setting. This is buoyed by the fact that the only thing that separates the two kinds of space is a minus sign in Einstein's relativity theory. Susskind, for his part, agrees that it's time to look at real space. I think it's about time we got out from under the protective layer of ADS space and opened up into the world that might have more to do with cosmology, he said. Desitter space is another beast. Susskind is working on a new model where desitter space may be a hologram of a different version of the SYK model that uses not four particles in each interaction, but a number of particles that grows with the square root of the total number of particles. This double scale limit of the SYK model is behaving more like desitter than ADS, he said. There's far from a proof, but there is circumstantial evidence. Whether this can ultimately be tested in a lab is still an open question. So I hope most of that made sense. Um, like I said, there's way weirder things in physics. Uh, that mostly made sense to me, so I hope it did to you. And I will uh, be back next week. So thanks for listening. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.